the whole books of Titus shows us that sound doctrine will produce godliness and godliness is manifested in a well-ordered church well-ordered lives which make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive brothers and sisters remember I talked about familiarity last Sunday and sometimes you can read this that's why I left you in Creed so that you might put what remains into order and not think that that's something completely new it's completely new the gospel is in Crete. Gentiles, the place where the Philistines dwelt. A dark place. How can that happen? It didn't happen under the old covenant. It happens under the new covenant with Jesus Christ. He came to bound the strong man, to bind the strong man. And why? So the gospel could go forth to the Gentiles, to the nations. Marvelous, glorious, beautiful, holy, righteous, gracious, merciful, patient. God that you are, we, we have spoken to you through the singing. And it's so good to bless your name, to praise you. Oh, Lord, thank you for saving us and putting a new song in our hearts, in our lips. But now we, we come to that moment when you speak to us through your word and, and how we need to hear you, Lord. So please help us. Speak to us from your throne by your spirit through your word to us lord our hearts are ready because of your work in us help us to come under your word help us to submit our lives to the governing authority of your scriptures lord I pray that you'd pierce our hearts, shatter our earthly and carnal presuppositions, Lord. And as you destroy the old, I pray that you'd build a new, a new love for you, a new affection for you, Lord. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see the beloved one full of love, mercy, and grace. For those who do not know you, I pray that today would be the day of conquest and conquering. Drag them to the cross. And please, Lord, we know that there are those satanic birds flying ready to snatch the seed Pray for your angels to be here helping. Pray for your Holy Spirit to be empowering me and this lovely congregation, Lord. Speak, O oh Lord. Just like little Samuel said, speak, O oh Lord, for your servants. Listen. In 
Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What a joy it is to be with you and what a privilege it is to stand here and preach the word to you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your support and your encouragement. It's always a humbling blessing to stand here. Very humbling to stand here and be able to preach the word. I want to invite you to please open your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Let us read verses 5 through 9. Here's the word of the Lord. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but instead hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord our God. Order! We have seen in movies, documentaries, and maybe even in real life, the judge saying, order, and with the mallet, order in the court. And usually the judge is requiring order because things are what? Yes, yes, out of control, disorderly in the court, and that cannot be. The command for order is to restore the order. Somebody's disrupting the procedures of a court. Order is vital in all areas of life. Think about how an orderly life is so much more beautiful than a chaotic life. Chaos and disorder are ugly, kind of repulsive. We like movies when the heroes come and place order in a city where there is no order and lawlessness. We like to be at homes where there's order, right? You like to go to a home where there's some sort of order in the home. Amen? Much better than going to a chaos and disorder where there's food all over the carpet and the walls. And you got to be careful where you're stepping. And suddenly there's no respect from anybody for anybody in the house. So we all love to go to a place where there's order. Many of us can picture Jane and Michael witnessing the young nanny lady coming from the skies. Do you remember her name? Mary Poppins. And we like Mary Poppins, why? Because she brings order to a house. She helps 
putting their home in order. Titus, similar to Mary Poppins, is called to come and set the churches, the households of God in order in Crete. There is disorder. And Titus is commanded by Paul and by God himself to come and bring order to God's household. But the order that Titus needs to place here is very different from Mary Poppins. He cannot just snap his fingers and get things done. It's going to require a lot of work. A lot of work. The churches in Crete, they need to reflect the Lord of the church by being well-ordered households of Jesus Christ. We know that there are false teachers coming to the churches and always... False teachings, instead of producing godly living, will produce ungodly and disorderly living. So the whole books of Titus shows us that sound doctrine will produce godliness, and godliness is manifested in a well-ordered church, well-ordered lives, which make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive to a disordered and chaotic world. So we could title the book of Titus as, Order, order in the churches. That's what we see, because as you come to chapter 1, verse 5, you can look in your Bibles. That is, we are coming to the main body of the letter. We were in the salutation or the greeting, and now we are moving to the main body of the letter. So you can see in your Bibles from chapter 1, verse 5, until chapter 3, verse 11. That's the main body of the letter, and then you're going to have the final instructions and final greetings starting verse 12 through 15. But it's the first part of verse 5, where Paul is explaining the purpose and the reason for Titus in Crete, that we have the main, the main command that will organize the whole book. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may... So you might put what remain into order. And now the rest of the book is going to be showing us how the order is supposed to be put in place in the churches. So, for example, in verses 5 through 9, we have a well-ordered church and well-ordered leaders or well-grounded leaders. And then you can move to a well-ordered church and the rebuking of false teachers because they bring disorder to the church. And then in chapter 2, we see well-ordered church and well-ordered lives. And then in chapter 3, you see a well-ordered church and well-witnessing church to the world. So, Paul, look at verse 4. Paul just wished and prayed for grace and peace upon Titus. And not only Titus, but all those churches that are reading those, that letter. Paul is Asking for more peace, more shalom. Remember the shalom, it's the destruction of chaos and hostility between men and God. One of the aspects of shalom and peace is that there is now a restored relationship and now there is order. There is order. And we see the, the grace and the peace that Paul is praying and wishing upon will not come through osmosis. It's not come by nothing. God provides means. There are means for the church to be more and more surrounded by the shalom that Paul is praying for. 
Uh, last Wednesday, we saw that in Philippians chapter 4, one of the ways that God uses to bring more peace to a church is doing what? Praying together. And now we're going to see that there are ways that uh, a church receives the peace of God is by being well-ordered. There are things that we need to do. Paul was very certain of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over all things, but there was no que sera, sera. We need to work. God has called us to work. He used means to accomplish that. So here's the outline of this morning's sermon. We're going to walk through verse 5. The importance of well-ordered churches. The importance of well-ordered churches. That's the first part of verse 5. And the importance of pastors for or in well-ordered churches. Okay, so the importance of well-ordered churches and then the importance of pastors for or in well-ordered churches. So let's start journeying here through verse 5. And we read, This is why I left you in Crete. So Paul now is giving the reason and the purpose, the goal for Titus as he is in that long, big island of Crete. And Paul is writing there, not primarily to Titus, but to those who are going to listen and read the letter. Titus knows. Titus knows why he's there. Of course, it's always good to be reminded. But the primary purpose of Paul writing that is so the churches will take heed of Titus' commands and instructions. Titus is there under Paul, under the Lord Jesus, to put order in the churches. We know that from verses 1 through 4, the, the hope of eternal life is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this hope must be passed to faithful leaders who will follow Paul and will follow Titus in passing down the hope of eternal life in the gospel. We do not know for sure how Paul and Silas ended up in Crete. He here says that Paul left him in Crete. Sometimes there are scholars who believe by the, the word apoleipo there, uh, to leave behind. It also could mean to dispatch or to deploy. We don't know for sure. Was Paul there? Most scholars believe that Paul was there in Crete and he left Titus there. He had to go to another mission. Other scholars believe that Paul just sent Titus but it doesn't matter. What matters is that we know why Titus is there. The Bible tells us why he's there. And it says, that's why I left you where? In Crete. In Crete. In our first sermon, I talk about Crete. So if you want to know, know more information, you've got to go back to the first sermon. But I'm going to just give a brief summary here. Crete is a massive island in the Mediterranean area there. Fourth largest, longest island in the Mediterranean. You can see in the map where we can find Crete. You can see kind of the structure of a very mountainous, a lot of mountains in Crete. Uh, what's fascinating about Crete is that in the Old Testament, uh, it's associated with Kephthor, 
And Kephthor was the place of the Philistines. And it's believed in, uh, that the Philistines come from actually from Crete. And remember that they were men of the sea. Crete was a very important location for travel and trade. You have all the ships coming and stopping there. So it became a mixing pot of religious, philosophical, and other influences. Crete was deeply polytheistic, believing in all sorts of gods. You have found temples of Zeus, Apollo, Dionysius. Very pagan and immoral location. I told you that the Cretans believed and proclaimed that Zeus was born and died in Crete. And because they claimed that Zeus died in Crete, that's one of the reasons that they had the fame of being liars. They say, no, Zeus never died, especially in Crete. Cretans were viewed as barbarians. They're well known for self-indulgence. They're wild, immoral, sexual promiscuity, gluttony at feasts. And you see, Paul is going to talk about that when you come to chapter 2. Chapter 1, sorry, towards the end of chapter 1. And you remember in ancient times, a place could become, <laughs> you think about, a place could become a verb. Do you remember that? So, to Corinthianize was to become immoral. So, a person who was immoral, even though was not from Corinth, you could say, oh, he's a Corinthian. The same with to Cretanize was to become a person who is immoral, a liar. Cretans were very well known. So Cicero, for example, he says, Moral principles are so divergent that Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. Raven asked, he notes that Crete was a place proverbial in the ancient world for its moral decadence. Historian Polybius wrote that it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or a public policy more unjust than in Crete. That's where Titus is, brothers and sisters. That was not a vacation spot. He's not going there to enjoy the island, get some sunshine and relax. It's actually hard work that he has there. And what's important for us, as we see our society becoming more and more like Crete, we learn from Titus. There's much to be learned from this letter. Titus had a very difficult task geographically. Talk about geography. He needs to travel through the whole area of Crete, going to the different cities, very mountainous. But not only... Physically exhausting, but spiritually exhausting because of the spiritual condition of Crete. So, as you think about Crete, the island, that's the theater. That's the theater where this inspired ladder will show Christ to those churches. It's in that dark place, according to chapter 2, verse 11, where the grace of God appeared. We do not know for certain how the gospel came to Crete. There are, uh, scholars are divided among two options. One is 
We, he, we heard in, in Acts chapter 2 that there are people from, from Crete in Jerusalem during the day of Pentecost listening to Peter's sermon. So one option or hypothesis is that those who heard the gospel from Peter went back and started churches. The other option is that Paul, once he was set free from his imprisonment, his Roman imprisonment, he went to Crete to his Titus and preached the gospel there. We are, we're not sure. But what we know for sure is that there were churches in Crete. And that's the evidence of the conquest of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, remember I talked about familiarity last Sunday? And sometimes you can read this. That's why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And not think that that's something completely new. It's completely new. The gospel is in Crete. Gentiles. The place where the Philistines dwelt. A dark place. How can that happen? It didn't happen under the old covenant. It happens under the new covenant with Jesus Christ. He came to bound the strong men, to bind the strong men. And why? So the gospel could go forth to the Gentiles, to the nations. That place where Satan was reigning for so many centuries became a place with colonies of heaven. And the flag of Christ was placed there. And now we have it from rebels to redeemed ones in Crete. And we cannot, we cannot but see the fruit of the ministry of Jesus and the fruit of Pentecost. That dark island in Greece, the home of many Philistines and pagans, is now under the lordship of Christ. As a result of Christ's finished work and dying on the cross and rising from the dead and ascending to the Father and being crowded, crowned with throne, a throne of glory, the Bible tells us that Satan lost his power to deceive the untold millions of pagans who he formerly kept blinded to the God's saving truth. Jesus said before he ascended into heaven, all authority has been given to me. There is a change now. All authority has been given to me on earth and in heaven. Therefore, go and make disciples. There is a new a newness of the authority of Christ and the gospel going forth. So the white horse of the gospel of Jesus was riding through the whole island of Crete. Once a Philistine territory, now a place with churches, little embassies of heavenly kingdom. And the same rider, the same white horse that was riding Crete, Rides here also in Salem, Oregon. Saving sinners, conquering sinners. Amen? And Paul says, he talks, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town. And that's important. As I directed you, as I commanded you. It's towards the end, this, this expression, but... That's vital. All that's taking place here, this word, as I directed you, as I commanded you, had, was a word used for kings, was a word with much authority. And what Paul is requiring from Titus here is not optional. 
order in the churches is not optional. It's a command from God, and every single church must be ordered according to Christ's will. So he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remain into order. That's a key word. That's the main command. You need to put what remain into order, to set things in order. It's fascinating that this Greek word here is only used one time in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's used right here. It's a very rare word, but this word has been found in documents in Crete. It's fascinating. So Paul knows that the Cretans know about this word here. Because that's the only place where they found this word being used was in documents in Crete. And also carry some very heavy and formal aspects. The word implies putting things that are disorderly in order, putting things straight. And that's the character of God, a God of order. Our God is a God of order. The concept of order is related to the nature of God. There is a pattern. You read the scriptures and you see that there is a pattern that moves from chaos to cosmos. Cosmos being something organized, beautiful. Chaos, something without organization. We see this pattern throughout the scriptures. A God of order who conquers chaos. Our God is not a God of disorganization, chaos, disorder, confusion. Chaos refers to the lack of order. So Paul says to a church that was completely in disarray, in disorder, Paul tells the Corinthians, For God is not a God of confusion, disorder, but a God of what? Peace. Wait, I thought it was going to say a God of order. Why? Because it's a synonym. True shalom brings order to the life. True peace brings order. Once you are right with God, with a God of order, your life will be ordered. But if you move to verse 40 of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is going to tell us that we are to do all things with order. There's a parallel between a God and peace and order. So you think about a God of order, creation. Think about creation reveals a well-ordered God. It's beautiful to see how God orders things in creation. Not only creation, but the home is supposed to be well-ordered. That's why we find God's instructions about household, how the household is supposed to live. We don't create our own ideas. God has given us Precept for maintaining order in the home. The church is supposed to be ordered. And the society is supposed to be well ordered. God gave government to keep order. And of course, like every good gift, sinful man abuses and perverts. We see selfish and perverted men who bring evil through overbearing, oppressive, controlling, and totalitarian ways of achieving order, an order that has nothing to do with God's order. So, like everything that's good, sinful man can pervert. Order and freedom. Man can pervert freedom, man can pervert order. 
Amen? So our task is to go to the scriptures and see what order looks like according to God. Sadly, we live in a society that rejects order more and more. Look at our society, look at our culture and the downfall, the rejection of order. More and more, we live in a place, look at the streets around us. We live in a place where disorderly is increasing. And then sadly, sadly, people come to church expecting to see a place just like the world disorderly. So they come to church and they see order. They kind of don't like that. Ugh, too much order. Too tyrannical. The Bible is clear that our worship service must be well-ordered to reflect the God of order that we worship. Think about the worship under the Old Covenant. God gave orders of how the worship was supposed to take place. People could not just bring whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, and however they wanted. There was order for the sacrifices, for the liturgy, for how people were supposed to worship the Lord. That's very important. God's a God of order. And the, worships, the worship service in our churches and our churches are supposed to be well-ordered. You think about our worship service here. There's an order to the service. Amen? There's an order. There's the prelude. And we sing a song. And that's the prelude as we're asking you to come and take your places and get ready to worship God. As we are starting to play and sing, it's not time for you to raise your voices, brothers and sisters. No, it's time to calm down. Calm down, take your places. We are about to worship a holy God. So there's the prelude. There's a salutation. There is pastoral prayer. There is the maybe reading of creeds, talking about churches abroad. There's the call to worship. There is the singing, there is the preaching, there is the benediction, there is the fellowship. First Sunday of the month, we have the Lord's Supper. The readings, the songs, they are ordered by biblical themes. In the scripture, peace, shalom, involves not only the end of hostility, but the setting of things in their right order. When the Lord acts for his people, he brings not confusion and disorder, but peace and order. So properly ordered worship and church life proclaim this truth and present God to the world as he is a God of peace and order. There must be order in the local church. That's why formal membership is so important to keep order in the church, to know who belongs to the church. Amen? Because as soon as people start creating disorder in the church and you need to discipline them, how are you going to discipline if people are not members of the church? How are you going to discipline a disorderly person who is creating chaos in the church if you don't have an orderly way of knowing who the members are? There's order in the Lord's Supper, how we take the Lord's Supper, there's order. That's one of the things that Paul is criticizing the Corinthians is by how they're taking the Lord's Supper in a disorderly, ungodly manner. There's order in our prayer meetings. There is an order. 
You just don't show up there and do whatever you want. There's an order in the prayer meeting. They're ordering the various aspects of our church. Announcements, different events. And the pastoral office is responsible for maintaining and supervising order in the church. Some people believe that order actually kills the church. I remember being part of a church where the more disorganized they believed, the more the Holy Spirit was moving. The more chaotic the service was, they believed the more God was presently active. But that's not biblical. The Holy Spirit is the God of order. And well-ordered church shows to be a household where God is present. Amen? And that's why we saw, we saw earlier church polity. Remember, we talk about, about church polity. And that's exactly what Titus is doing here. Church polity. The order. Remember, we define church polity as the order of the church, how the church is ordered and is structured. So when Paul is telling Titus in Titus 1.5 that the, the church needs to be organized, have elders, uh, certain types of behavior in the local church, he is literally telling Titus to get polity in those churches. I like what Mark Garcia writes. He says, Church polity may seem to some like dreary stuff, but when seen as a glorious provision of Christ to preserve and secure the church's future, meditation on the ordering of the church can lead the saint's heart to sing rather than slumber. Why? Because when we are looking at church order as Christ moving in the church, Something that, apart from the work of God, we would never treasure, we would never take it. We sing because we know that God is working us. We who once hated church, and especially church organizations, now we are so enthusiastic to be in church and see the church healthy. Amen? So, Paul says that he's leaving Titus there, to put in order the things that were remaining. There are some remaining things. There are some leftovers there that need to be put in order. And those who are perfectionists will criticize Paul for leaving the church with some things undone. Right? How dare Paul? I thought that Paul was better than that. Are you serious? He left the churches in Crete? Not finishing the work? First of all, you've got to remember that God's sovereignty over all things, and most certainly Paul's desire was to stay there longer, but he couldn't. Under God's providence, he had to leave. But I like what Robert Yarbrough, he says, for those who get surprised by that, he says, this is hardly surprising. The work of ministry is never done. We will never find a perfect church. There's always space to grow, space to mature. There will always be certain things remaining to be worked out. Amen? But we also see here that Paul 
despite being the greatest man who ever lived apart from Jesus Christ, the only, I, I think Paul was the greatest man, of course, taking Jesus, who ever lived. We see how he always labored with co-workers. He could not accomplish by himself those things. That's important. And as you read Paul's letters, you find him mentioning names and names of people who were working with him. He always needed help. And that's the beauty of the body of Christ. The whole body working together, the whole kingdom serving together. And then we, now we move to the importance, the importance of pastors in well-ordered churches. Or the importance of pastors for well-ordered churches. So now he tells us here, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town as I commanded you. Brothers and sisters, the setting things in order, that's the main command. That would be the umbrella command here. And then things are going to come underneath. And the appointing of elders is one of the ways that Titus will help the church to be organized. Like Paul, Titus cannot do that on his own. That's why he needs to appoint elders. He cannot. He's not a bishop where he's overseeing all those churches and in charge of those churches. That's why he needs to bring it up men to be pastors in those churches to do the work that was passed from Paul to Titus and now to this man. Tells, tells us the appointment of elders. Appoint elders. We, Paul is not clear here how Titus is supposed to appoint the elders. Is Titus supposed to be the one going to churches and say, I want you, I want you, and I want you? It, we, it doesn't say here. As we, we studied that before, that's why I'm not, I'm not going to spend time here, but as we were talking about why we are a congregational church, we talk about the biblical evidence for the whole church to be involved with the appointment of leaders. So I talk about that prior. I will not spend time here. But he says that he's supposed to appoint elders where? In every town. Every single city. And imagine that place was big. That island was long. Hard to travel. And here's Titus having to travel throughout all the mountainous islands. Trying to find all the cities where they have churches. And telling them that, okay, we need to put things in order here now. Enough time, let's put things in order. And you start seeing how churches need pastors. Of course, under God's providence, uh, a church can be for a season without pastors and still be a church. But God's means is that the church will have elders, pastors, overseers over them. And Christians need to be in churches with biblically qualified elders. It's a duty and privilege to be a member of a church With biblically qualified leaders. That's what I often ask people who say that they don't believe in membership. I say the Bible tells that you are supposed to obey and honor and respect your leaders. Who are your leaders? If you don't belong to a church, if you're not a member of a church, 
If you're not a member of this church, I'm not your pastor. Please don't tell people I'm, I'm your pastor. If you're not a member of this church, I'm not your pastor. I'm the pastor of the flock who has committed themselves to this church. So who are these elders? Look at verse 5. Paul calls them elders. Now look in verse 7. Paul calls them what? Overseers. Wait, is that two offices? Is that two different people? Elder and then overseer. Elders, plural, overseer in the singular. That's where sometimes people come and say, they see in the churches are supposed to have different elders, but you're supposed to have a bishop because that's the Greek word, episkopos, over the whole thing, just one. But no, that's not it. The terms, I would say that the terms elder, pastor, bishop, or overseer, they're used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. They are different terms for the same office. Amen? So there's a pastor who is an elder, who is an overseer. And if you, I don't know if you can see, but for example, in Acts chapter 20, as Paul is talking, he called the what? The elders, presbyteros. He calls the elders of the church in, in Ephesus. And then he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers to pastor the church of God. So right here you have the three words connected to the same office. The elder, overseer, and pastor. Same thing with First Peter chapter 5. To exhort the presbyteroi, the elders, among you as fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising what? Oversight. So you see the three words related to the same office. In First Timothy, we see the overseer, and then in Titus, it's interesting that Titus used elders and overseers, but with very similar qualifications, showing that the elder and the overseer exercise the same office. Or, I didn't put here, but Ephesians chapter 4, when it says that the Lord ascended and he gave pastor teachers to the church. So, uh, we can say that the elder, the term elder, presbyteros, conveys the idea of a man who is spiritually mat mature. Maturity, spiritual maturity, that's what's related. It refers to who he is, his character. We often think about elder as elderly age. He has to be old, but no, we've got to be careful with that because even in the Old Testament, it does not necessarily refer to the age of the person, but to the maturity of the person when you're talking about an office. It's not just because the person is old that the person is wise. We know a lot of old people who are very foolish. <laughs> I think it's similar to the English word veteran. So a veteran can be somebody who is older. So we talk about a veteran, oh, can refer to somebody who is older. But a veteran also could be a young person who served in the military and was discharged. The guy is 23 years old and he's a veteran. So it's very similar, the word elder. So elder as an office, Barry speaks of the godly dignity that that person carries. And goes back to the Old Testament where the elders would help leading God's people. 
Not only elder, but the term bishop or overseer, depending if you have the King James, you have bishop. If you have newer translation, you have overseer, but comes from the episkopos, scope, episkopos, exercise oversight, refers to what he does. The verb related to episkopos speaks of one who has the responsibility of safeguarding, guardian, he's guarding something. And that speaks of his role, the elder, the pastor, as one who exercises oversight over the church. Caring for the church. The term pastor refers to both what he is and what he does. He is Christ-like, he has a pastoral heart, he loves the flock, and he does is that he protects, he leads, and he feeds the flock of God. So there we have elder overseer, and pastor. How these three words refer to the same office, but have different connotations, brings different aspects of this office. And going to 1 Peter chapter 2, we read Peter saying, 1 Peter 2, 25, For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to whom? The pastor and overseer of your souls. So the elder, he is an under-shepherd. He is an under-overseer. Christ is the head. Christ is the shepherd. Christ is the overseer of the church. But in His grace and in His mercy and His kindness, He appoints a man to be under Him to lead His people. All elders have the same authority, but sometimes we have a distinction of labor. So, and we see that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, there is the teaching elder. And that's, we hear a lot that in the Presbyterian churches where the difference between the elders comes to the teaching elder. In most Baptist churches, Reformed Baptists, you have elders and then you have the pastor. But they're all elders. The pastor becomes a distinction for the one who ministers the word constantly. So... But it's, it's not like one has more authority than the others. They're all equal in authority. How about the number of elders or pastors? The, the New Testament never gives a number. Because that's what I say. Sometimes in a church under God's providence, we will happen to not have a pastor. And the church will be looking for and praying for the Lord to bring, raise an overseer to the church. So... As a local church, as a local church grows, the need for more pastors is natural. Plurality of biblical qualified men to serve as overseers is the goal of any, should be the goal of any healthy local church that is growing. Guess the time it's impossible for one man to do the work. You need other eyes to oversee. You need other hearts to shepherd. The great problem is when some churches trying, and there is good intention there, to maintain the, a plurality of elders, and they put the, there must be a plurality of elders in their bylaws. And what I have seen happening is, what happens under God's providence when suddenly you have just one? But the bylaws, the bylaws says we need to have more than one. Suddenly you are appointing men to the office who should never be there. Because of the pressure, 
We need to have more than one. That's why I think it's so important, this elder-led congregation. One man cannot have all the power. The church also has. And when happens under God's providence, you have only one. There is this beautiful accountability between the congregation and the pastor. Benjamin Merkel, he says, how many elders is not as important as who the elders are. So, what do these men do? What do the pastors do? I think the, you can turn with me to First Peter, First Peter chapter 5. And I'm just introducing the, the, this theme of pastoral ministry, eldership, because that's what we're going to be covering the next sermons. So, for example, we have a brief summary in First Peter chapter 5. Peter says, So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well a partake, partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Look how he says, shepherd, pastor, the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He's in charge. He exercises oversight. He shepherds. And he is an example to the church. Those are broad terms. The main duties of elders, pastors in the church can summarize, can summarize this. To teach the church sound doctrine. Protect the flock from false teachers. False believers that come to bring division to the church. Equip the church to do the ministry. Supervise and govern the church. Be an example to the church. Supervising the church. Caring for the flock. It's a lifestyle. Right? It's a lifestyle. I have had people ask me, how many hours do you work per week? Uh, you can't stop. Right? Like constantly. It's a lifestyle. It's a life given to shepherd the people of God. It's very hard. It's not easy. Everything you do, people are looking at you, watching you. The people whom you love the most stab you the hardest. But it's beautiful. It's glorious to be able in a very, very tiny way to resemble the great shepherd of our souls. So as we come to the end of Titus 1.5, we see the beauty and the power of the gospel just in this verse 5. We behold the goodness of the gospel of God, a gospel that brings order to chaos. Amen? Our lives apart from Christ falls apart. And if your life today is falling apart, if your life is disorderly, if your life is chaotic, run to Christ. Today is the day his arms are wide open, wide open. And in the same way that he received Cretans, 
those ungodly wild beasts is ready to deceive you and me. So we see the power of the gospel in transforming chaotic lives into lives of order. And we also see the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Christ and how much he loves the church to give the church man to lead his bride so his bride will be orderly. Order in the church. He wants his bride beautiful. He wants his bride orderly. And in a world that's falling apart, in a world that's chaotic, without order, the church is supposed to be that place where people come and they say, wow, this, this place is different. This place is different. There is peace, harmony, reconciliation, order. How beautiful is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we... We go to the dust. Your word humbles us, destroys us, kills us. And yet at the same time, it lifts us up to your heavenly throne, brings life and joy. It is indeed sweeter than honey, more precious than gold and silver. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness manifested in so many different ways. Lord, thank you. Thank you for taking our lives out of disorder, chaos, array, and giving us the Holy Spirit, giving us shalom, giving us order. And Lord, I pray to protect our church. Guard us, O Lord. Help us to honor you. Thank you for being our shepherd our elder, our overseer, Lord. You are the perfect shepherd. And help us. Help us to love you and treasure you. Help us to remember that the same gospel that was riding throughout Crete is supposed to be riding throughout Salem. Help us to be bold with the gospel of Jesus. Save people, Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus' name.